Uh, there are a lot of characters in Scripture whose um, stories are not fully told. Um, and I have, I've always really loved kind of diving into those really obscure characters that nobody knew about or nobody is familiar with. Um, I was the, uh, part of the children's ministry up in Connecticut, and um, all the, the assistant pastor had, uh, I believe, six children, and they were very well-versed in the Scriptures. And so when we first started teaching, I would teach like a, um, a Sunday school time every, every week, and we would go for like 13 to 26 weeks at a time, and then somebody else would teach. So the first couple of weeks, we, um, I uh, talked to them about a story, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that one. And uh, it really started challenging me. I'm like, man, what, what stories in Scripture do, no, don't these children know? Um, and I finally found a couple, thankfully. I started to worry a little bit. But um, the, the story of Mephibosheth is, is one that's not very well known. Um, you may be here today and you said, well, I, I've heard the story of Mephibosheth. And uh, maybe you're very well versed in the story and you could probably be in better position to be preaching this sermon than I. Um, but regardless, I think it's good to look into Scripture and to, to really delve into the Scriptures and to see how we can apply the story of Mephibosheth uh, to our lives. Mephibosheth is a character that's not mentioned very much in Scripture. He's only mentioned 12 times in Scripture, and we'll be looking at nine of those 12 times in our sermon today. And although the accounts of his life are not given in detail, the very brief portion of Scripture where he is mentioned uh, can, can really illustrate for us and gives us a great illustration of the grace of God, both in Mephibosheth's life, and also we can look at our own lives and see how God's grace extends to us as well. The, the very first mention of Mephibosheth is found in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll be looking at that passage in just a minute. But the real story of Mephibosheth starts back before Mephibosheth was ever born. And why don't you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we're going to read a portion of Scripture here I think all of us are, are acquainted with uh, to some degree. But it's the story of King David uh, and Jonathan, his friend. Uh, king David was anointed as the king over Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. However, uh, David not being one to, to do, take any action against the king, or as David referred to him all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel to the very end, uh, the Lord's anointed. He didn't want to take any action against King Saul to remove him from his position as king. Uh, uh, David already was anointed by Samuel, king of, uh, over Israel. And so uh, being there in the, the, king of the, court, uh, the, the court of the king, King Saul, uh, David played his harp, and the Bible says that Saul's uh, wrath was kindled against David and even sought to kill his life there in his very court uh, as David played for him. Uh, the following chapters, as we look through 1 Samuel, uh, detail for us uh, Saul's uh, intent to hunt David down and to kill him. And here in, in chapter 20, we find David and Jonathan had become close-knit friends. And Jonathan, of course, was very close to the king, King Saul. And we find in, in uh, chapter 20, look with me in verse number 11 through uh, verse number 17, we'll read this. We could read the entire portion, but for sake of time, we won't. 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 11, And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, 
The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is where the story of Mephibosheth really begins. And we'll see how this covenant made between David and Jonathan really established for us the way that that David uh, treated Mephibosheth when he sought him out, not to harm him, but to do him good and to show him kindness. This covenant was a covenant established between David and Jonathan. We see here basically a one-sided covenant that that Jonathan makes with David. He says, David, I promise to you that I will go. I'm going to going to kind of put out feelers and feel out how, you know, my father, the king, is feeling towards you. And if he's feeling well disposed towards you, of course, I'm going to tell you that. But if he still seeks to do you harm, I, am, I promise you, I covenant with you that I'm going to warn you about that so you may escape and safely in your life may be spared. There's a couple of things here to indicate that, that this is not just an agreement or not just something nice that Jonathan is doing on David's part, but it is a covenant that was made between Jonathan and David. Notice here in verse number 12 and 13 uh, how he begins uh, this covenant. He says, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. What Jonathan is doing in prefacing his statement in here in this covenant is calling God to witness to the covenant that he is about to make to David that if anything should be done according that is not according to the covenant, should he go back on his promise and covenant with David, that God would be a witness against him that he has indeed broken this covenant. The second thing that we see is uh, further on is the terminology that, that Jonathan uses when he makes this covenant with David. He says this in verse number uh, 13. He says, The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose to you and send you away. The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. We see this terminology mentioned uh, in the book of 1 Samuel as well as the book of 2 Samuel. And in the book of Ruth as well, we see um, uh, Ruth making this commitment uh, to her mother-in-law. The Lord uh, do so to me and more also if I turn away from following after you is what she said in Ruth chapter 1, verse uh, 17, I believe it is. So here, just using this terminology indicates that this is not just a kindness that Jonathan's showing, but it is a covenant that he is making with the king, although he is not reigning and ruling as king. Notice also a couple things about this covenant. Not only was it a covenant indeed, but it was, this is a covenant that is based not upon the works of his descendants or the actions of his descendants, but upon the actions of the one making the covenant with King David. Jonathan doesn't say, you know, if if my descendants are well-behaved and one day when you're king, if they support you fully and if they do what's right and if they uh, uh, not worship you but but recognize you as the king as opposed to my father, their grandfather, if they're good people, then I would ask that you be kind to them. If they're kind to you, then be kind to them. That doesn't play a part in what he is saying here. He says, 
I am going to do this for you, and because of my actions towards you, I am covenanting towards you that I will make this act, that do these actions and in return. There is a kind of an unstated, implicit covenant that is uh, mentioned here that you will bestow kindness upon my family, that you would remember me, that you would, if I am still alive, not kill me when you come into power, that you not do away with my family and wipe, of, wipe us off the face of the earth. It's not a covenant that's based upon the actions of his descendants, but rather upon the actions that he has taken and has promised to take towards King David. David's responsibility in return is to show kindness to Jonathan if he is alive and to show kindness, steadfast love to his his descendants. This is regardless of their actions. This is regardless of their status in life, wealthy, poor, it doesn't matter. Notice thirdly regarding this covenant, in making this covenant with David, uh, Jonathan explicitly recognizes that David is the chosen and anointed king and that God is finished with his father Saul. Notice in verse 13, he says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. You are the anointed king. One day I know all of your enemies will be crushed under your feet because you are the the anointed king over Israel and God, may God be with you just as he was with my father. Here, this covenant, uh, we could probably spend much more time developing it more fully, but this really is the basis of uh, Mephibosheth's life. This is the reason why we have 2 Samuel chapter 9 and read the story of Mephibosheth in Scripture. So having seen this covenant between uh, David and Jonathan, let's, let's actually be introduced to Mephibosheth as a character. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you turn with me, uh, turn with me there, we see the first mention of Mephibosheth in Scripture. This was a very tumultuous time in Israel and in Judah. The last part of uh, 1 Samuel uh, contains for us the death of Saul, and we'll find out that Saul and Jonathan were both killed at the same time. Uh, later on, uh, David receives news of uh, Saul's death. Uh, we find David ascend to the throne. He is anointed uh, of king of Judah in chapter 2, and he begins his reign as king in the elementary stages. Uh, here, uh, later on, there we, we see there, there's a battle, kind of an ongoing struggle between the house of David and the house of Saul and between their servants. Uh, Abner, who is a, a servant of uh, King Saul for many years, uh, makes a covenant with David and joins together with David and, and promises to serve him uh, as the king, uh, which upsets Joab, Joab being his nephew, David's nephew, that is. And we see in uh, chapter uh, 3, in verse 26 through verse 30, we see the murder of uh, Abner by Joab. This kind of prefaces this and kind of summarizes this really tumultuous time. Even though uh, King David uh, was very kind and very respectful, and uh, uh, did not seek to harm the house of King Saul. We know that uh, Joab was kind of a, a loose cannon, kind of, even when David told him not to do something, he's like, you know, I'll go ahead and do it anyway if I see fit. He was often very uh, quick to justify himself in doing that. In fact, later in uh, King David's reign, we see Joab was the one who actually killed Absalom, his son. Uh, when Absalom was caught in the tree, uh, there Joab came and, and slew uh, Absalom, the son of David. So here in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, we, we see Ishbosheth. Uh, Ishbosheth was um, the, the king of uh, Judah for some time. Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron. His courage failed, and Israel was dismayed. 
Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands, the name of one uh, Beana and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beeroths fled to Gataim and have been sojourners there to this day. Notice verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is how it happened. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his son was, or his name was Mephibosheth. Here we see the unfolding story uh, here being introduced to Mephibosheth as a five-year-old boy. Uh, It was customary in those times as when a new king came to power, um, especially uh, when a king was overthrown and a king from a different family or a different country overtook that throne. Uh, for the members of a family, uh, the remaining king's family, uh, to, to be killed. They uh, would often be sought out and murdered, uh, lest anyone follow after them instead of the new king who was uh, newly ascended to the throne. I think sensing that urgency, uh, we see the nurse that was taking care of Mephibosheth. Uh, when she hears the news of Saul and Jonathan being killed in battle, she rushes, I'm sure gathering what few things together that she can, and takes Mephibosheth, and in her haste, The Bible says Mephibosheth fell and became lame. Um, It's very, the the nerdy part of me often uh, wonders, as many of you know, I'm a nurse. um, I often wonder when I see ailments in Scripture, I'm just like, how exactly did this happen? What did it look like? You know, where exactly was his spinal cord damaged to the point where he couldn't walk, where he was lame in his feet? Um, Here we're dealing with probably like a mid-thoracic or upper lumbar uh, severe spinal injury or maybe a complete spinal cord injury where there would be no sensation, no movement, and he was just basically just his hands and arms. He could breathe, he could move, but he was no longer able to get up and and, and walk and carry himself. He would never grow up to be a man that could work out in the field and provide for his family. He was done. We'll see later how um, the, the, the actions and the attitudes towards uh, people with physical disabilities, we find that portrayed in, through all of Scripture. We'll look at one of those instances a little bit later. But we see this uh, Mephibosheth was injured. It was an injury that was, could not be recovered from. It was permanent. This would never be solved with some therapy or maybe just some muscle training. He would forever be lame. He was helpless and hopeless. So this is the situation we find Mephibosheth in, and that kind of brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 9. In looking through uh, 2 Samuel 9, we're going to look at uh, one portion of scripture in 2 Samuel 21, and I'll I'll try to preface that as best I can when we get there. But here we find in 2 Samuel 9, David searching for descendants of King Saul. In verse 1, is there still anyone left of the, of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Here, I'm sure posing this question to his courts and to his advisors. Is there anyone left from King Saul's family? Many of them, I'm sure, weren't very close with King Saul's family because they were of David's band and not Saul's band. So they, they say, oh, we know, we know someone, his name's Ziba. He was very instrumental in Saul's house. He was a head servant, so to speak. So why don't we call him here and we'll inquire of him. So here Ziba comes before the king and David poses the same question to him. Is there anyone, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
Here, as we said before, it was customary to hunt down a family members from the previous king and to kill them. History holds many illustrations of this, with kings uh, killing even their, their wives, uh, killing their brothers, and in some cases, kings killing their own sons to preserve the integrity of their throne and their reign and rule. This was not an uncommon thing. So here, David, I'm sure, is very um, exaggerated when he's telling them, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I can show him kindness, right? I'm not trying to do away with anyone. I'm trying to fulfill a promise, a covenant that I made with Jonathan when he was alive. And I'm sure as they heard him, they're thinking, yeah, right, yeah. He is going to do away with these people as fast as he can, just like every other king does. So we see uh, here David asking and searching. But it's very interesting. David was married to Saul's daughter, right? Michal was her name. David was married to her. In fact, that was David's first wife of the many wives that he had. Don't you think it would have been just as easy to go to his wife and say, hey, do you have any family members left? I kind of want to do something nice for him." Certainly she would know of uh, any family members in her, uh, any remaining family members, cousins, uh, nephews, nieces, um, uncles, aunts, people that were related to her father, Saul. But he doesn't go to her. Instead, he goes to the court. And I, I often thought, like, when I was looking at this, I'm like, well, why, why did he have such trouble finding the remaining family of Saul? I think the answer for that is found uh, later on in 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 21. Why don't you turn there with me? 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21 is a, is a part of Scripture, uh, is part of, I'm, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, referred to as the epilogue of 2 Samuel. Uh, as we know throughout Scripture, not everything that is contained for us within the, the chronological text or the text of Scripture as we're going from chapter 1 to chapter 24 or whatever it may be um, is often happens in that chronological order. And what is contained for us in 2 Samuel chapter 21 through 24, some scholars believe, did not happen in this chronological order. In, in other words, uh, for chapter 21 coming chronologically after chapter 20 and 22 coming chronologically after 21, Instead, uh, many people believe that this was an exposition or maybe just like a glimpse into something that happened uh, in another part of the book, but it's given in more detail here. And I, I think there's some evidence of that um, regarding the story of, uh, that we find here in chapter 21 of the Gibeonites and also in chapter 22. And I'll notice chapter 22 very briefly because we'll not be getting into that. Um, but chapter 22 is a song of deliverance. Um, and verse 1 says, And David spoke to the Lord, the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of who? Saul. This was a song that David sung to the Lord the day that God delivered him from his enemies. Well, of course, this day, if it were to chronologically follow chapter 20, this was not the day that God delivered him from the hands of his enemies and from the hands of Saul. This happened probably at the very early parts of 2 Samuel, maybe chapter 1 or chapter 2, when he heard of Saul's death. That would have been the day when he was delivered from the hand of Saul because God chose to deliver him in that way and to kill Saul the king. So I believe that chapter 22 did not happen chronologically as we see it mentioned here. 
chapter 20, 21, 22, uh, as time progressed, but this was probably just an exposition um, that was placed there at the end of the book of 2 Samuel instead of in the chronological order in the text. I think the same is true with chapter 21. Uh, Chapter 21, and I'll kind of just uh, summarize it here, contains for us a story of famine. In verse 1 of chapter 21, uh, the Bible says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So to summarize very quickly, um, the story of the Gibeonites is found in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, we know that when the, Egypt, when the Israelites left Egypt, they left with great, a great power, a powerful display uh, on behalf of God. Uh, God performed many miracles. In fact, we just left from looking at a lot of the miracles that God performed for the Israelites. The fame of God spread far and wide. Many people heard of the plagues that had been done upon the Egyptians. And as God gave them victory after victory as they crossed over the Jordan River into Canaan, uh, the news of that traveled fast as well. The news of Jericho, that first major victory as they crossed over Jordan. The second victory, uh, after their defeat at Ai, later they went back and they utterly slew Ai and took over the city. And the Gibeonites came uh, to Joshua in chapter 9 of, of Joshua, and they were very conniving, very deceitful in the way that they approached Joshua and the Israelites. They took out the most worn clothes that they had. They took out the oldest wineskins that they had. They made themselves look distressed like they had traveled a very far distance. And they went the couple miles it was to the camp of the Israelites and presented themselves to Joshua. And they said, we have traveled a very, very long way. But we've heard about what your God has done. And so we want to make a covenant with you that you will not utterly wipe us out. And one of the Israelites said, well, how do we know that you're not our neighbors? And they were like, no, 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 let me tell you, we are not your neighbors. They deceived them. And so there the Israelites made this covenant with the Gibeonites to not kill them. And later on, right after they made this covenant with them, it was discovered that these Gibeonites were not from a faraway country, as they had said, but they were like their next door neighbors. They were going to be right there as the Israelites came in and conquered the land. So Saul, when he came to power, um, I think probably jealous uh, for the cause of the uh, Israelites and probably a little, uh, a little ticked at what the Gibeonites had done, a little upset with them, uh, broke the covenant that the Israelites and the Gibeonites had. Uh, the Bible doesn't contain for us uh, everything that went on in that story, but it's apparent from 2 Samuel chapter 21 that because of Saul's killing of some of the Gibeonites or many of the Gibeonites, we don't know the exact number, uh, that there was blood guilt upon Saul and upon his house because he had put the Gibeonites to death. So here, David goes to the Gibeonites. He tries to work something out. Maybe we can give you some land. Maybe I mean, he tries to bargain with them, but the Gibeonites say, no, we want the blood of those that killed us. The descendants of the one that killed our descendants, we want them to die. So it's very interesting as we see in verse 6, the Gibeonites make a demand of David. They say, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. Kind of hear the sarcasm in his voice as he says this. And the king said, King David that is, and the king said, I will give them. 
But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king, King David, took two of the sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. This was not the same Mephibosheth. This is obviously a different one. The five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite, and he gave them to the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. So here we see a story where David not only knows of the death of some of Saul's descendants, but actually gives them up to be killed, knowingly gives them up to be hanged. The Gibeonites make no bones about it. Give us seven of Saul's descendants, and we're going to go hang them on the hill. And he picked out seven, and he gave them to him, and they did exactly that. And seven of Saul's descendants died that day. I think this kind of plays a part, uh, and I do believe that, that 2 Samuel chapter 21 took place before what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, it would be hard to conceive that it would be difficult to find um, descendants of Saul if there were plenty of Saul's descendants, but not so difficult if uh, at least seven of them were killed. What do you think happened when those seven descendants of Saul were killed? Let's get out of here, guys. We got to scram because David is going to wipe out the rest of us too. So I don't know whether, um, and Scripture doesn't tell us, some people believe that uh, in verse 7 it says that the King David specifically spared Mephibosheth, because of the covenant. Some people say that, that David actually took Mephibosheth and he hid him because they probably wanted to kill Mephibosheth too, um, because he was Jonathan's son, the son of Saul, as opposed to the lesser-known um, people that he mentioned here. Some people say, well, David took him and told one of his upper people, go hide him in a place that I don't even know about so that he'll be spared and so that one day if I'm captured or killed that they cannot extract this information from me. I don't necessarily find that all that compelling but no doubt, when Mephibosheth was spared, he probably thought to himself, it probably could have been me too. Maybe he had one of his close friends take him somewhere where no one would find him. We don't know. But we do find it um, a little more understandable how that when David says to the, his court, um, are there any descendants of the house of Saul? Um, that they would say, well, you know, I haven't seen any of Saul's descendants around here for a long time. Let's, uh, let's get someone that knows a little bit more about this. So here we find uh, Mephibosheth spared because of the covenant that, got, that uh, David made with Jonathan, but seven others killed. So here he brings in Ziba. Ziba was a servant of Saul's household, and it's, it almost seems as though that Ziba has kind of found himself over all of Saul's possessions and land and everything that Saul owned. It was, seemed to be now in the hand of Ziba. Ziba was a servant of Saul's household, and uh, we don't exactly know much about Ziba. Uh, we don't have a, a bio contained for us in Scripture of who he was or where he came from. Uh, very interestingly enough, uh, Jewish tradition holds that Ziba was actually a non-Jewish servant of King Saul. He was a slave of Saul, um, and he was an overseer of Saul's property and possessions. He was one of the highest positions that you could possibly be as a servant or slave. Um, it's very interesting to note that um, the, the, the name Ziba means statue, uh, and some people think that 
that was kind of indicative, and he was renamed Ziba because of the false gods that, that he and his people worshipped before he was brought to Israel. Again, this is all uh, tradition. We don't exactly know. But in terms of um, the situation Ziba found himself in, he kind of lucked out. I mean, he, he hit the jackpot. Saul was dead. None of his descendants are living in, in Israel uh, or knowingly or openly living in Israel. They are hiding, uh, most likely, if they are alive uh, at all. He kind of found himself over all of Saul's possessions, and he and his 15 sons and the 20 servants that he had uh, were kind of living the life. They had all that they could ever desire. Uh, Saul was a very wealthy man, as, as almost every king of Israel was, especially Saul, David, and we see uh, David's uh, son, uh, Solomon, uh, indescribable wealth they possessed. So here he comes, uh, he calls Ziba before him, and he asks Ziba, hey, is there anyone left of Saul's house that I may show him the kindness of God? And so Ziba was honest with David, and he tells David there in 2 Samuel 9, it's very interesting how he says it too. It's almost like he's trying to make an excuse or make some justification. Uh, he says, uh, it'd help if I'd be in the right passage, right? 2 Samuel chapter 9 and uh, verse number 3. He says to him, there is still a son of Jonathan, um, but he's crippled in his feet. There's one that I know of, but um, he's not really in a position to, uh, to do anything, if you know what I mean. He can't go out and uh, he can't really, um, can't really be a leader. You know, he can't go to battle. You know, he can't even go out into the field. I mean, there's really nothing that he can do. Um, he's crippled. And so I kind of hear and I'm not sure if he was trying to justify his, his standing as kind of an executor or someone who uh, had control over Saul's possessions, but he's like, he's crippled, and that's, that's kind of why you're stuck with me here. So he kind of brings to light Mephibosheth's state, and we've already seen this here. Uh, Mephibosheth was, uh, as, as uh, Ziba says, he was crippled in his feet. I find it interesting the way that he said that and, and not, uh, he was just lame, as, uh, as other part of Scripture suggests. He was crippled in his feet. Not only that, but uh, the king said, where is he? And Ziba said, uh, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Not only was Mephibosheth crippled and unable to, to get up and to go out and work and to provide and to do what almost every other normal uh, person in Israel did in those days, he was uh, unable to do that, but he was dependent upon others to provide for him. He was unable to provide for his own needs. He couldn't, he may not have been able to fully dress himself. He would maybe not able to, uh, to uh, bathe himself or to feed himself. Um, he couldn't gather together the things. Someone had to prepare something and bring it to him, and then he could eat. Maybe people had to carry him where he needed to go. We don't know how much uh, mobility he had um, because of his injury, but he was dependent upon uh, Makir, the son of Amiel, for his sustenance and for his provision. Not only that, but we see his location where he was uh, living. He lived in the house of Makir at Lodabar. Uh, Lodabar was, um, I, I was reading something on the internet, and someone described Lodabar as um, the ghetto of Israel. Uh, Lodabar, the term means no pasture. This was not somewhere where you'd want to live. This was a place probably that was desolate, 
probably that didn't have a lot of fields, that you, it was not a very fertile part of the country where you could just go out and plant whatever and it would just automatically grow. Um, if you wanted to grow something in Lodabar, you had to toil and sweat and give it everything that you had. And so because of that, probably not many people live there. It's probably a small little hamlet or village, uh, very obscure that not many people knew of and sh- surely no one would go there uh, on their vacation, so to speak. So we find the Mephibosheth's state And he says to Ziba, bring him to me. And in verse 6, we see uh, Mephibosheth coming to Jonathan. And we see, first of all, about Mephibosheth when he comes to, uh, to, to, pardon me, not Jonathan, to to King David. We see his posture. Uh, The Bible says when he came to David, he fell on his face and paid homage. He granted to the king the the respect that was surely due him for his title and for his position. He fell upon his face. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. There's two things that Mephibosheth says here. One, he says, I am your slave. I am your servant. Do with me as you will. Tell me what to do, and I will do it if I am able to do that. So we see his posture before David. He prostrates himself on the ground. He falls on his face. And he says, um, I am your servant, David. And then he makes another statement, and, and this is a really interesting statement to, uh, to look at throughout Scripture. He says, David said to him, don't, first of all, don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. Don't be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Who am I, David, that you should show any regard for this dead dog like me? Um, if you call somebody a dog nowadays, that's a, it's not a very good thing to call somebody, right? In ancient times, it was one of the worst things that you could call someone. It was one of the highest um, degrading comments that you can refer to someone as. We see uh, this mentioned only two, two, two other times in Scripture. One is a very interesting time we'll get to. Another time where it was used of someone and he's referring to his enemy in contempt and he's calling him a dead dog. Um, some people look at this and say, well, this was kind of just an exaggerated way of... Uh, a statement of self-deprecation coming from Mephibosheth. Um, He kind of just went overboard, and um, he said, yeah, yeah, I'm a dead dog. And he was maybe it was like a false humility. Some people think it was that. I think he does overdo it to an extent. Um, Obviously, he's uh, worth more than a dead dog would be worth. Obviously, a a dog is not worth a whole lot, but a a dead dog is worth absolutely nothing. Uh, And if you don't have a place to take the dead dog, then it's, it's... it's worth less than absolutely nothing because it's going to stink everything up, right? Um, but he calls himself this dead dog. Uh, I think to a certain degree, he is exaggerating his condition and, and the extent of, uh, of how worthless he is. But to another uh, degree, I think he was at kind of summarizing how people viewed uh, those with physical disabilities and uh, that weren't able to go out and to do what other people did. Um, if you were unable to provide for your family, you were worth really nothing. 
If you couldn't go out and work in the field and be a, a productive member of society, there was really no reason for you to be around. And you were viewed with contempt. You were viewed as someone who is probably under the judgment of God because of the disability that you had. And we see this attitude not only in Old Testament times, but going through into New Testament times. John chapter 9, we see Christ and his disciples coming to this man who is blind. And what do his disciples say? Uh, Lord, whose sin uh, is this guy suffering for? Is this his sin or is this his parents' sin? Obviously, God is judging him for this sin. So whose was it? And Christ answered very simply, uh, no. Um, but the, that the power of God might be revealed and shown in him. This is why he's blind. It's very interesting when, when the Pharisees criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. I, I read something this past week that was very interesting to me. Um, some people said that they were angry with him because he healed on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath certainly played a part in the healing that Jesus did, uh, the, the reason the Pharisees were mad. But to a greater extent, uh, they said they were kind of mad at Jesus for healing these people, period. Because in their eyes, these people were supposed to be blind and lame, unable to move and dependent upon others. That was the judgment of God upon them. How dare you question what God has wrought in their lives and heal them? He said to a large extent, that in addition was the attitude that people had towards those with physical disabilities or mental disabilities or any other types of disabilities that would take them out of society and cause them to be a, a non-productive member, so to speak, quote unquote. So he says, I am a dead dog. I'm a dead dog. This explains the statement of Mephibosheth concerning himself. What he was trying to tell King David is, why, why are you singling me out for anything? I am the most worthless, utterly contemptible thing that can be hauled, called a human being on the face of the earth. Why do you show any regard for me? I am worthy of nothing but to be, but to be disregarded and discarded by society. The other term that, oh, time that this term is used, I found it very interesting, was actually used, it was used by King David. He was running from Saul, and Saul had caught up with him, and, and David says to Saul, after whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you seeking after? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog. That's how King David viewed himself in the sight of the king. I am worthless. I am nothing. Why are you seeking to take my life. This word also is used in uh, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 15 by Jesus Christ. And regardless of what you see on Twitter, um, Jesus Christ was not being a racist towards the Canaanite woman who came to him. Uh, the Canaanite woman came to him and said, uh, Lord, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Heal her. And the Bible says that Jesus completely ignored her. And she kept on, kept on pressing and pressing, and he said, uh, he answered her, and he said, it, it, it's not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she answered him, and she said, truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus was not sinful in his response to her and referring to her as a dog. He, what he was doing, he was testing her faith. And when she answered truth, but the dogs eat the crumbs, he looked at her and he said, oh woman, great is your faith. 
and he healed her daughter that very hour. This is the way that many people viewed people who had physical disabilities, and certainly this is the way that Mephibosheth viewed himself, worthless and worth nothing in the sight of the king. But notice verse number seven. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should disregard a dead dog such as I? Notice what is done for him. King David says, no, I'm, I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of Jonathan, your father. And he says, I'm going to do a few things for you. First of all, I'm going to restore to you everything that belongs to Saul. And then he called Ziba and he said, Ziba, everything that belonged to Saul is now going to be Mephibosheth's. It's going to belong to him. And you and your sons and your servants are going to go out and till the land for him. You're going to bring in the produce. You're going to bring in all the fruits of the land that Mephibosheth may always have food to eat. And as for Mephibosheth, he's always going to eat at my table. He went from being an absolute no one from nowhere to having everything that he could possibly have imagined. Sitting at the, at the table of the king, feasting luxuriously with David. From a pauper to a prince, from worthless to worth almost everything in the sight of the people of that day. He went from the place of no pasture to having all the pasture that he could ever have wanted at the table of the king. A lot of people hearing the story of Mephibosheth are like, man, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm not that person who's lame and worthless and helpless. And with you, I would say, I am so glad I'm not either. But the truth is, we're actually far worse. You see, Mephibosheth was lame in his body. He was crippled. His legs didn't work. But because of the fall, we are absolutely helpless and hopeless. We are bound and dead in our sin. You see, we were like Mephibosheth, but we were worse than Mephibosheth. He was paralyzed physically, but we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. We read this scripture in, uh, we heard from the scripture in Sunday school this, this afternoon. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. People thought Mephibosheth was under the judgment of God because he was crippled. But as sinners in our father Adam, we were under the judgment of God. We were under the wrath of God each and every day for our state before him. Because of our sin, because of our sinfulness, and there was nothing that we could do in the sight of God to merit any goodness or grace at his hand. But thankfully, the parallels in the story between us and Mephibosheth, pardon me, Mephibosheth don't stop there. 
Mephibosheth was spared for the sake of Jonathan, his father, and we have been not only spared, but we have been lavished with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because of the covenant that the Father and the Son made together before the world was ever founded. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 9, that we are saved because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Just as Mephibosheth was spared through the covenant that David and Jonathan made with one another, we are spared because of the covenant that God the Father and God the Son made before this world began. Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't stop at verse 3. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works." Mephibosheth was seated at the table of the king, but Jesus has caused us to be seated in heavenly places because of his work done on our behalf on Calvary. Every time I, in the past, every time I've read this story, I've always thought to myself, man, David was truly good to him. But looking at my own life and my worthlessness and my sinfulness, I can look to Christ and say, God has been so good to me, the dead dog that I am. Mephibosheth truly received a wonderful blessing, but it was a temporary blessing. Beloved, ours is not a temporary blessing. Ours is a permanent blessing. Our standing has been changed, and God no longer sees us because in our sinfulness, in our filthiness, but he sees us clothed in the riches and the obedience of his son, Jesus Christ, we are truly blessed today. And may you join with me in thanking the Lord. We have so much to be thankful for. God has blessed us so much. And we need to be thankful that God has has been good to us, even though we are dead and we are worthless and hopeless and helpless. Uh, Jesus is worthy. And we we are beneficiaries of his work that he's done for us on Calvary. Praise God for his good work that he's done for us. Let's pray. Our dear Father, Lord, in our sinfulness and in ourselves, we have no right to stand before your throne, to come before you and to offer our thanks. Lord, thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that all who come to Christ will not be cast out, but everyone who comes in repentance and faith will be saved, will be changed will receive a new life, eternal life, not just a temporal hope in this world, but a hope that extends far beyond the grave. And Father, I pray that you'd help us never to forget what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. May we seek to tell others of the good work that you've done and always be thankful for the riches that you have lavished on us in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we ask these things.